Welcome to Harper Audio Presents. This is Aaron Wicks with Harper Audio. This week we sat down with Smith Henderson, author of Fourth of July Creek, on sale May 27, 2014. Fourth of July Creek is a hard-hitting debut novel that tells the story of Pete Snow and his struggles and failures as a social worker in rural Montana in the late 1970s. Despite idealistic intentions, Pete often finds his capabilities to help himself and others fall short in reality. This conflict is embodied in his attempts to rescue a boy named Benjamin Pearl, who lives off the grid with his father, a mysterious and slightly crazed man named Jeremiah Pearl. But even as Pete struggles to help the Pearls, his own relationship with his wife and daughter becomes increasingly fraught. Pete's narrative is intertwined with that of a disembodied voice whose story comes to have a greater impact on his life than Pete ever could have imagined. Smith himself has had quite a colorful career, which served as fodder for his novel, including time spent working as a prison guard and social worker, and more current endeavors writing screenplays and commercials. His short fiction has appeared in publications across the nation, and Smith has won numerous writing accolades, including the 2011 Penn Emerging Writer Award and a Philip Roth residency in creative writing at Bucknell University. Before we hear from Smith, Let's listen to an excerpt from Fourth of July Creek. Here, Pete has just met Benjamin Pearl for the first time and is taking Benjamin deep into the Montana backcountry to reunite him with his father. The boy stood and tugged a sapling from the side of the hill and beat the dirt out of its roots. Pete looked around. He'd scarcely noticed that they'd walked into an area that had been replanted in the summer. Waist-high green pines grew up and down the hillside, The Pearls had chosen a good place to be away from society. The traffic up here, from the timber company at least, would be minimal for some years. Why'd you go into the school today, Benjamin? I don't know. Just sort of wandered onto the playground? I don't know. Well, what were you doing in town? Getting some things. What things? Food and things. You have a house or some friends in town or something? No. Dumpsters. The boy pulled another sapling out of the ground. They throw a lot of perfectly good stuff away behind the grocery stores, don't they? The kid shrugged and beat the dirt out of the sapling and tossed it over his shoulder. He pulled on another. It was almost as tall as he was. I don't think Champion Timber would be crazy about you doing that. The boy had no idea what Pete was talking about. Pete said they should get going. He's coming. Your father? Where? Here? He's been watching the whole way. This is Aaron Wicks from Harper Audio, sitting down with Smith Henderson, author of Fourth of July Creek. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, we are. (laughs) Hi, Smith. How are you doing today? I'm, I'm, I'm really good. I'm really good. Uh, so, from my first question, I guess you've had rather an interesting trajectory to get to writing your first novel. I believe you worked in Montana uh, briefly as a prison guard and a social worker. I believe you wrote a screenplay for an independent film and also an Emmy-nominated commercial starring mm-hmm. Clint Eastwood. And so, I'm just kind of curious about the path your career has taken and how you came to write 
this book specifically? I wrote uh, since sixth grade or something. I mean, I, I kind of always knew I was going to be a writer, but um, never felt felt like I didn't have anything to write about, which is and which is strange, I guess, because most most of them, like I think Flannery O'Connor says, like every yep. By the time you're 18, everything important that's going to happen to you has happened, and you have plenty to write about for the rest of your life. But I just wasn't blessed with that wisdom, I guess. So I didn't feel that way. And um, so I studied classics, like Latin and Greek, <laughs> of all things, at the University of Montana, and then and moved to Texas. And um, But before, before I moved to Texas and really started writing seriously as an adult, I worked at a group home for a little while, um, had various odd jobs. I mean, I was mostly a cook and things like that through college. And, um, and then when I was in Texas, I was a, yeah, I worked in a prison for a little bit, which is too crazy. I mean, group home was crazy. It was, yeah, I was, I got out of there as fast as I could. And, uh, and yeah, and then just that, that things, having those experiences were, were fodder in a lot of ways that were interesting, but it really came down to realizing that, oh, if you want to write, you have to just really commit to writing. You're not going to just experience your way into a novel or, or something like that. Um, and so that's when 10 years of writing my ass off started. It was kind of after that. And, um, yeah, so then I went to the university, I eventually went to the University of Texas, uh, the Missioner Program, studied screenwriting, um, and, and fiction, worked on this book, wrote a lot of short stories, was still kind of figuring out what, what I wanted to do, I wanted to work in a lot of genres, so, or I wanted to, you know, I wanted to explore different kinds of stories that I might want to tell, um, so I just wrote a lot of short stuff, but I was always working on this novel, you know, in the back, um, and then when I graduated it, I wasn't done with my novel. <laughs> I needed, to, I needed to. I really needed to finish writing it. I had a, I had a collection of short stories, and I, I, I just, um, I just felt that um, while I was proud of them, and I placed a lot of them, and I could probably publish a collection or get a collection together, I really wanted to focus on doing this. I wanted this was this was the work that I wanted to be my first, you know, thing. Okay, another loaded question off that is... Sure. It's, it's often said that a first book is heavily autobiographical. And hmm. the character of Pete is a social worker, and he lives in Montana, and you know, he's the, the protagonist. Do you feel that he is largely or partially autobiographical? And even if not, how have your experiences informed his experiences? Um, I think that... If you're writing honestly or as hard as hard as you can, you're, you you have to go into some uncomfortable places in yourself and and get and so yeah, there's that's what I think is meant by the autobiographical parts because it's not it's not the pretty parts. <laughs> I don't I mean I don't know I'm not the kind of writer who sits around and thinks like this is the great part about me I should write about that you know um, so. Uh, but it's definitely a, a funhouse mirror version of yourself, you know, if it is at all. 
Um, but common threads, I mean, I didn't, I never did the work that Pete did. I never went into houses and did investigations or things like that. Um, none of the events in the book are directly pulled from things that I experienced. I had to do a lot of research, but I found out about that job. And I found out about, and I knew about that place. The kinds of people that Pete encounters, I, I know. And the kind of person Pete is in a lot of ways, I am, you know. For people who have yet to know anything about the book, Pete's a social worker, alcoholic, whose family is a bit of a train wreck itself. Um, he works too hard, probably, for his own good and compensates in really bad ways, and his own family's falling apart. Um, pieces of his life are, you know... But he has, but he has a, I guess, a core of of things that he's proud of and some of it's tied to his work. I always pictured it, I always pictured it like this and maybe this is the way I felt, feel about being a writer as well that you you walk away from a day's work as a social worker um, with some pride that you you know you tried, you did something that other people don't do, you're doing doing some version of God's work. <laughs> you know, you're doing, trying to make the world a better place. Um, or you're trying to make a difference or trying to make somebody feel hope or whatever it is, just help, you know. And But the things you encounter while you're in there are really difficult and, um, and traumatizing. And so you sometimes learn, lose track of how to take care of yourself. So I think that's... Um, I think we all have probably done that a little bit like whether we've done been doing noble things or not we've failed to take care of ourselves so I think his story is interesting to me in that way I'm curious then it because it does tackle a lot of really hard issues there's I mean it's a social worker there's a ton of child abuse there's mm-hmm. a ton of self-medicating with alcohol and with drugs and I guess I wonder you know why do you choose these things to write about do you find it cathartic to, to write do you find do you have any I mean maybe you don't even know the reason but I, I'm, I'm curious as to the motivation uh, I'm, I'm kind of grinning and smiling because I've, I've had that question asked to me of like people in my family and stuff <laughs> <laughs> why, why are you writing this stuff it's were we is it so awful what's wrong with you you know um I mean that's where the that's where the drama is. That's where the good stuff happens dramatically. I mean, I guess it's the short answer. That's the. Um, it's not all that, right? But I think there. Are, I think and I think there are parts in the book that are sort of joyful and, um, and in their own you know sort of fucked up way. And I don't know. I think there are things that are pretty funny in there. It might be the only one that thinks they're really funny, but <laughs> <laughs> no, no. It's it, there's. I mean, you kind of needed to lighten it up, and I I think it yeah. exists. In well, I want to, and I will say one one thing. So you I, you have this idea. You you go, oh, this is great because people love doctors and lawyers and cops in their fiction and their TV and their film and stuff, and it's all over the place. And social worker does all that stuff. They go do investigations and they. They, they have, you know, traumas they have to deal with, like emotional traumas and all of these, like, um, these dramas that are happening that, these, that they have to go into every day are little Tennessee Williams plays. It was like, you know, holy shit, like, you go in there and it's going to be totally messed up and really interesting and um, it's going to have an effect on your protagonist and that's going to be great. And then, and then I discovered... 
Oh, we're talking about children and bad things that happen to kids, and that's um, like that could be pornographic in the worst possible way. Like, there's no, and and I, you know, I was just I thought, oh, I'm fucked. Like, how are you gonna write that? How are you gonna make that um, palatable? You know? Yeah. And so it was a constant struggle to figure out how to present it in a way that you can encounter and live. <laughs> you, <Yeah>. know? <laughs> you know? I didn't want you to jump out your window <laughs> when you finish the book, you know? Um, but the the work sort of wears, you know, wears on those people. They're, they're heroic, you know, in a lot of ways. It felt very authentic to me, all, all of the these really tough situations that I think are very hard to depict with subtlety and with deeper understanding. And then you, you mentioned earlier uh, something about doing research, and I'm wondering, you know, what research did you do? How did you inform these scenes and experiences? Um, I'm tempted to make a joke about, you know, just raising terrible families. And <laughs> I made a lot of bad choices, <laughs> wrote them all down. Um, I interviewed people, you know, who were in the field, uh, I, you know, read a lot of stuff. I did a lot of research into kind of like the um, current literature. You know, I mean, there's schools of social work all over the country. There's plenty of journals about it. And um, I mean, one of the things, too, is that, like, for instance, I came across this, the, the idea of, like, uh, of, um, call it secondary trauma, um, which is just the trauma that happens to people who encounter trauma all the time. Yeah. And... Um, you know, I found out that there are, um, I'm not an expert by any means, you know, you, you get as much information as you can to, to, to believe in your story, but not so much that you're, you know, feeling like you're going to get fact checked or everything has to be, you know, um, a little information is really good for fiction, (laughs) um, or just the right amount, but, um, but yeah, secondary trauma became really interesting to me and became a, a driving kind of concept in the book um, that what Pete's going through is that. And uh, it's my understanding that now a lot of so that there's a lot of social work organizations um, have um, social workers for the social workers that, that 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 there are people who can identify like you know it's like that cliche in the cop movies like you've gone over the edge, McBain. You're just <laughs> Man, you're t- <laughs> give me your badge and your gun. You're, you know, sort of these these tropes that are truly, you know, cliches and the, like beat to death in the movies with the cop stuff. But it's true. Mm-hmm. If you encounter nothing but horrible stuff all the time, you're gonna get messed up, and you're gonna need, um, you're gonna need some, you know, mental assistance. And um, so, I really, you know, drill down on things like that. Um, you know, so I come across little, little bits of. Um, you know, what was in the literature. Uh, did some ride-alongs with social workers, you know. It's mm-hmm. nothing like, nothing, nothing like watching, you know, a woman who weighs a buck and a quarter, like, stand in front of a door looking for, you know, a 200-pound guy for whatever reason <laughs> that that case involved and just thinking, like, man, you just, you're just going up there. and Shit. <laughs> Yeah, just knocking on the door and going, you know. Um... You know, and you discover, you, you come across these little insights like, well, 
on some level, a lot of these people, the reason why they answer the door and don't, you know, come out swinging is because they know they need help. They're not going to say, like, thank God you're here, mm-hmm. you know. They, they're they've fundamentally dysfunctional, but they are greatly relieved, you know. And there's there's a terrible drama in that, like, no, don't take my kids. And inside, they're like, take my kids. Take yeah. my kids. I can't handle my life. Take my kids. Don't take my kids, you know. And so you've got Pete, which is it's largely focused on, but you also go into, I mean, it's still third person, but the more of the headspace of a, a 14-year-old girl whose family and life is sort of falling apart. And I've been a 14-year-old girl, not in those circumstances, but I uh-huh. thought that, you know, you got in that headspace really well. I'm assuming you've never been a 14-year-old girl. I haven't. And I'm uh, wondering how you go about trying to get into her headspace, or maybe yeah. why did you find it necessary to do that, both of those? Mm. Um, I think, I'm not sure, that you you just start with, you, you know, the most human place that you can be at, you know, um, and and I guess what I mean is that you can imagine feeling empathy or feeling estranged from your parents, and oh wait, you have, you have felt those things, and so then the only thing that you have to add is you're in this different body, or, and that, that implies these different ways that the world interacts with you, so what would that feel like, and how bewildering would it be to you to go from, because she's, you know, a a, a very at the beginning of just beginning to understand like that she's becoming um, a young woman and she's not you know so honestly that is uh, like that process was almost me discovering like exploring how to form her as a character in a way because she starts out in a kind of clay like initial state that then changes throughout the book you know, and the things that happen to her and the choices she makes make her more um, of a female character. I think in a way she's a child at the beginning in a lot of ways and then kind of grows rapidly through a lot of bad decisions <laughs> into in, into some something else. Um, so, um, which probably is how it feels to be a teenage girl, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, yeah. I, I would agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> Not quite the same trajectory, but right? but I yeah, but yeah, I think it, yeah. no, I think it, that's why it resonates so well. Is that it is a kind of a universal experience in a certain way. Same thing, and a, you do you do it as a teenage boy too. It's just yeah. different. It's just different, different little facts, you know, mm-hmm. um, different ways that the world treats you. I know another really intriguing character is Jeremiah Pearl, mm-hmm. who is kind of a seemingly madman evangelist who's on the run from the law in the in rural backcountry of Montana. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering why did you feel the need to write him or who, who where did he come from in your head? Um, well, it just wouldn't be a Montana book if there wasn't some sort of character that lived up to a you know, Kaczynski Unabomber level of crazy, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you grow up there, and you you think it's kind of a normal place, whatever. But then you see what's in the, what's really in the news about it, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, or has been. Yeah. I mean, there are these, you know, there's just always, it's always been this pl- this place that draws people who want to be um, really independent, 
I hope he becomes less crazy by the end of the book or more understandable. That sort of character is in that place, like the yak. There are those people who, um, their idea of freedom, you know, in, demands more freedom than they feel like they have. And it's frustrating. It's difficult for them. Yeah, that was something that really struck me in the book was this sort of tension between the government and the people. And, you know, it is, it's this very rural community, but, and it's, it's set in the late 70s and early 80s, but um, it seemed very applicable to kind of greater American sentiment today and seemed to resonate very strongly. Um, is there a reason you chose to write about this specific time and place? Do you, what, how do you feel it is applicable today? I don't know. Oh, there, yeah. There's a question there, but just kind of expound upon it. <laughs> sure. Um, you no, you're right. You're right on. I said it right during the like right at the outset of the Reagan Revolution, because um, this country profoundly changed after his election and and really moved in so many significant ways to the to the right, and in in ways that like uh, we we think often about the cultural stuff, the the sort of I don't know whether you want to debate about abortion or or just you know prayer in the schools or things like that. But when Reagan was elected, a, a people in Pete's position who were social workers were had, had a fair amount of fear that you know he was gonna gonna cut their jobs. He kept talking about the government being on people's backs, and here you are going in as a government worker to investigate people who may be abusing their children, and your president is saying that you're the problem. And that's become a commonplace, you know? I mean, you know, Clinton was like, there are big governments over. So we, you know, this country is, you know, uh, I mean, not to get on a soapbox, but, you know, this the, we've <laughs> we have really moved in, in that direction and continue to, but that was a good place to set the book. It's very dynamic. Yeah. Everything about the book is... And tense. I mean, it had me missing my subway stops. I, it was so yeah, I heard that. Uh, somebody told me you missed a couple subway stops. <laughs> yeah. Is, I mean, uh, there's no higher praise. Uh, yeah, I mean, yes, <laughs> I agree. If a guy, if a guy from Montana can write a book that can make a uh, a person from New York miss subway stops, <laughs> I feel like we're really communicating as a country. Yeah, I, actually, I want to talk to you more about Montana because you okay. are you're reading this book. I'm reading this book. I'm on the subway and I feel like I'm in Montana. I'm completely, I think that's one of the reasons the book works so well is that it's so grounded, it's grounded so vividly in the sense of place and you, that's where you grew up and um, yeah, can you tell me a little bit more about the landscape? I mean, it almost becomes its own character. Um, well, okay, there's, as a writer from a place, you sort of, you know, you have an obligation to probably do that place some sort of justice, I guess, you know, just as a base level. But I also feel like writers from the West have an extra obligation because the, the place is almost the dominant characteristic in most people's imagination of, you know, it's a big, it is a big character. Um, it's a big landscape. People, uh, you know, people from Manhattan would be anxious, you know, in a, in a big open space in a lot of ways. You know, would feel, you know, tend, tend to anyway. Uh, I, first time I was in Europe, I got I got nervous because there wasn't a Wyoming right nearby that was empty. 
<laughs> you know, that, that bothered me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? So, um, so yeah, the, um, that, so it's towards capturing a psychology, if that makes sense, that it's not about the place so much as how the place on a day-to-day level, you know, how do you get that, how do you convey that feeling without saying, you know, you need to feel wide open spaces or you need to feel mountains or you need to feel, and then the yak is also a very unique place in itself. It's, it's, the book, most of the book is set. It, it sits, you know, in the lee of, of Glacier National Park against the mountains and it's actually lower elevation, more rolling, but almost because the, the Gulf Stream, the weather hits those big mountains and glacier, though it kind of cycles back and rains a lot right there and snows a lot right there. And it's, some, it's a rainforest. The, the, the land is um, spongy. You walk on it and it's, uh, they call it, my dad called it, my dad's a logger, he calls it duff. It's, uh, it's just all this um, cedar, leaf, uh, cedar needles and just fallen brain, all this stuff that's decomposing. It's like the Amazon, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, just every kind, you know, every, every layers, everything's interconnected, all the layers of species are, you know, and so it's just this amazing, amazing, beautiful place um, that Rick Bass has dedicated as much of his life to <laughs> trying to keep people out of. <laughs> so trying to, get, trying to get that on the page is the challenge. And so I'm, I'm pleased that it felt it. It's a little hard to believe that, um, as a writer, you know, you, to, to sit back and go, yeah, like, I, this, this, is, this worked, you know? Um, or that, that, you know, it's, I don't know, it's surreal, it's great. Um, I'm really, really excited to, to hear that you, you enjoyed it as much as you did. <laughs> good, good, very good. And I, I guess just to kind of to wrap things up, any mm-hmm. any future plans on the horizon? I mean, to just really load. You spent ten years on this book, and now yeah. I just want to know what's next. I have another Montana book, but I think it's set in the eighteen sixties. There's some pretty cool. There's a sheriff who got hanged by the people in this town. And as soon as I heard that, I was said, "Okay, that sounds good. Let's find out what that was all about." Yeah. Story in that. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know if I'm. It's a. I don't. It's not you know like quite a a western, but I guess it's it's set in a mining camp in the 1860s during the Civil War. So I don't know. We'll see how long it takes me to write that one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, looking forward to it. Whatever it becomes. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Oh, thank you. Our last clip is from the other perspective in Fourth of July Creek that of a young teenage girl whose story becomes entangled with Pete's. Here she describes a scene from her childhood. So, later, it's almost dark and time to go home, and her daddy is calling for her, and she goes. She's five or maybe six. And he's in a hurry about something, about getting mommy home. They had a fight because she was being foolish. Daddy had begun saying that sometimes about her, that she'd get foolish at parties. Sometimes grown-ups acted silly, he was saying. No, not like spoils, silly, but Mommy has her own kind of silly. It's, we got we got to hurry. And he says, come on, the bridge is too far, the car's right over there, the lot is across the creek, C- come on. 
and he picks her up, and they go into the dark water. And she tells him, Spoils said to stay out, and he wasn't being hilarious. They are already up to his waist. He's breathing hard, straining against the water, footing the rocks now, slow steps. The water is cold through her shoes. She says she's scared, Daddy, and it's cold, Daddy. And she pulls her feet out of the water, and it changes his balance, and he stumbles, and she clutches and screams. He stops in the middle of the stream, says for her to be quiet, be still. He's breathing heavy. Water's not that deep, not over my head, but it's fast, okay, he says. You gotta just hold on, I got you. His breath burns her nostrils, and the smell of his sweat is bitter. She realizes much later, when she got that bottle of creme de menthe with Kim and Lori from Lori's dad's liquor cabinet, that he was drunk. But even at the time, she thinks, I don't trust him. I don't believe him. He doesn't have me. You've been listening to Harper Audio Presents, the bi-weekly podcast from HarperCollins Publishers, available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher Radio. This week, we spoke with Smith Henderson, author of Fourth of July Creek, on sale May 27, 2014, and listened to clips from the audiobook narrated by McLeod Andrews and Jenna Lamia. Please join us again, and thank you for listening.